Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate now to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where fine podcast products are available. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find this show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Dylan Palman, Executive Editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a Research Fellow here at Acton. Today, this is going to be a Groundhog Day episode of Acton Unwind because we're going to talk about the same two topics we talked about last week, uh, the first of which being what is going on in Ukraine and then that dovetailing into what went on at the State of the Union speech last Tuesday. So let's start right in with Ukraine. Uh, I, I think I continue to be somewhat surprised by how much this seems to be dragging out. And I can't help but have this very the sense of foreboding about it, that the longer that this continues the way that it has been continuing without it being very clear, clearly Vladimir Putin thought that this would not still be at this level of conflict at this point in time. And the danger of that is you have Vladimir Putin now in a situation where he either has to escalate into tactics and strategies that he probably would prefer not to have to engage in, such as leveling cities and more indiscriminate bombing, uh, or he ends up looking like this is bad for him and it's costing him and he could run into problems back home if this continues to drag out for this much uh, this much longer. So I say that as a as a predicate to what I really want to talk about and what has been one of the more surprising things to me, which is how much we've seen from the players in Europe in response to what Russia has done. I think the the clearest, oh my goodness, kind of example is Switzerland, famously neutral Switzerland, has agreed that they're freezing money in bank accounts. I mean, that is Switzerland is the place that you go when you want to move cash around like that, if you want to have money beyond scrutiny. Um, we've seen uh, similar Responses from the EU, we have seen Sweden agree to sell um, or send military aid to uh, the Ukrainians. Sam, have you been surprised? Oh, and the one that I also have to mention um, before I forget, Germany agreeing to its obligations for NATO to spend 2%, so a huge increase in their own defense budget, which I just think that we should note. On one hand, it is their NATO obligation, and it is a good thing that they will be upholding their NATO obligation because it's what they're obliged to do. On the other hand, I don't know anyone who can hear the news that Germany is rearming and not get a little nervous about it. So, Sam, how surprised are you by the response of individual countries in Europe, but also uh, the European Union and NATO members to what is happening with Russia and Ukraine? Well, on one level, I am surprised. And on another level, I'm not surprised. So I'm surprised insofar as a number of European countries have clearly engaged in some major policy shifts within the space of literally 10 days. Uh, you mentioned Germany. Germany, since the end of the Cold War, had adopted a policy of strong engagement with Russia, partly because of the desire for Russia, uh, German businesses and entrepreneurs to go into Russia to find and explore business opportunities there. Uh, secondly, because there's also a long history, we forget this, but there's a long history of German cultural and political engagement with Russia, which is somewhat obscured by the two world wars, particularly the Second World War, or as, or as Russians call it, the Great Patriotic War. But before that, there was a long period of time in which German states engaged in extensive diplomacy, political and military 
engagements with what was Tsarist Russia. So there's a long tradition of this. And also, I think it's fair to say that Germany over the past, particularly since the end of the Cold War, had moved towards a position of, you might call it crypto-pacifism, but also this conviction that somehow uh, that the way forward in terms of dealing with international relations was what you might call the the exportation of the EU model of intrastate relations to the rest of the world. So it's been fascinating to see just how quickly so much of that has been abandoned in the face of what Russia calls a military operation, but which is otherwise known as a war on the European continent. The second thing I would say is that I'm not, surpri- I, I, I'm, I'm not surprised, on the other hand, by the fact that different European countries have reacted in a relatively strong way, and it depends on the country. That's not, they're not all e- reacting in exactly the same way uh, because it seems to me that they recognize, or at least they've been forced to recognize, that uh, Putin, the Putin regime in Russia has a particular understanding of the world, it has particular geopolitical goals that it wants to achieve, and that really the only way now to prevent Russia from doing that is by changing the way that the European Union and many European countries have engaged with Russia up until now. So I'm surprised on one level, but also not surprised on another. I think one of the biggest things to watch and and Last week on this program, Dan Huger pointed out that there are these carve-outs in some of the economic sanctions that have been uh, laid on Russia for, as we were talking before we started recording today, Dylan, we pointed out that, you know, for the Italians, they want to still be able to sell luxury goods to to the Russians. Um, But what... I think it is somewhat amazing to see, and I I can understand also (laughs) how disconcerting it is to see the ability given the way financial transactions happen in the world today. Uh, People in the more urban areas of Russia all of a sudden not being able to use Apple Pay or Google Pay on their phones, uh, that credit cards and debit cards are no longer working. The... Uh, electronic nature of so many financial transactions means that you can shut it off, uh, kind of like uh, just turning off a spigot like this. And on one hand, if the point of the sanctions on Russia is to make it hurt, then I think they seem to be accomplishing their goal there. But you would also, in the same way that people raise concerns about uh, what big tech can do from a free speech standpoint that they deplatform people from Facebook or from Twitter. Uh, this seems a lot more serious than a lot of those things that we've been arguing about with big tech, the ability to just turn everything off like that for an entire country is an incredibly powerful weapon. And it should be one that even if we think it is justified in this case, and I think it's arguably true that it is justified in this case, it still should be the kind of thing that probably makes us pretty nervous. Um, absolutely. Um, you know, the, I, I think, yeah, on the one hand, we can be excited that there is such unanimity in terms of opposing um, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, um, in, including from uh, the commercial sector, right? On the other hand, that's, that's a lot of power. For companies to have, um, that's the sort of thing that they, as you mentioned, was in the case of Swiss banks, used to be famously neutral about. Uh, say, hey, this isn't our our fight. You know, we're just providing a service. Um, and I think for everyone um, concerned and fearful about it, and rightly so, um, we should be even more fearful and concerned as soon as people start saying, "Well, we got to do something about this. Let's put a government in charge," <laughs> because imagine how much worse it would be. Um, as bad as it is, I don't know what the solution is. Um, I am concerned, uh, but I, I find it—I find it actually a bit alarming. Um, hopefully, it will lead to some good fruit. I don't know. I'm, I haven't really seen that yet. Uh, it's pretty probably too soon to call. Um, but I, I think this this could be a very bad precedent, even if it is maybe good in the short run. The other thing to keep in mind, of course, is that sanctions are always a sort of double-edged sword, right? Because on the one hand, 
you can hurt a regime substantially through some of the measures that different European countries, the European Union, the United States and other countries have implemented vis-a-vis Russia. But regimes can also use sanctions as a way of bolstering domestic support, right? They can say, look, there's, there's our proof. This shows that they're attacking us, etc." The other thing is, is that countries are very good at getting around sanctions. And I think it's pretty clear that Russia will look to China as its main conduit for the export of goods, shifting some of its uh, exports to China. And that, I think, is, that, that, that is a good example of how sanctions uh, can reinforce the regime at home and they can also re- produce unintended consequences because I'm sure that it's not in the United States' interest to have Russia and China growing closer together. And sanctions can have the effect of accentuating that. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be doing sanctions. I think there's a pretty good case for sanctions against Russia, etc. But there are these unintended consequences that play out both economically and in terms of foreign policy. The impact of those sanctions uh, in terms of what we feel here in the West, because essentially we're isolating an entire country. 10% of the oil that we import in the United States comes from Russia, uh, cutting that off entirely. Now, look, you could say 10%. That's not a huge amount, but you know, 10% is not an insignificant amount actually. Um especially when you consider that energy policy as it is in the United States right now is not uh, as open to uh, ready replacements for the 10% that we import from Russia. But other than that, I mean, as the the joke goes that uh, Russia is a gas station with an army, we're not talking about a nation with which the United States or even a lot of these other countries in the West have a lot of commerce. It is primarily around the energy sector. It does put into context, though, because it allows you to think about it. Now, it being, of course, the impact on energy highlighted by any time you're going to fill up your car with gas right now that we're already, you know, it's 380, I think, when I filled up um, this past weekend. And I think it actually just nationwide, the average hit over $4. Um, this is definitely going to have an impact on energy demands in and energy prices in Europe. This whole thing to me contextualizes if things would continue to escalate between the West and China, cutting off trade with China in the same way that we have essentially cut off uh, economic transactions with Russia. Think how hugely disruptive that will be. I don't think it would happen. To the point that I agree with you, I don't think it would happen either. So it, in a way, we're doing what we're doing with Russia because it's feasible, because the cost to the West and to uh, nations in Europe is, relatively speaking, low. And there are other alternatives that you can find to replace the lost energy that you're not going to be importing from Russia. China is an entirely different ballgame, and it it necessitates that you consider that these kind of tactics probably not only would be too painful to engage in, it's the kind of thing that seems to be off the table because, as you said, Dylan, it it would be so painful to everyone that it wouldn't make as much sense to do it. Yeah, I mean, you have to look at these as effectively consumption taxes, right? Um, the American people are being asked to pay more at the pump in support of uh, U.S. response to the crisis in Ukraine, the Russian invasion in Ukraine. Um, and like any consumption tax, uh, the poorest among us pay the most uh, in terms of percentage of income. Um, and in the case of fuel, uh, who's most likely to have a car with poor fuel efficiency, uh, unreliable, that sort of thing. It's poor people. Um, That is who is going to pay the most for this. Um, So we need to be very considerate of that sort of thing. Again, I agree with Sam. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be enacting sanctions, but there are lots of unintended consequences that go far beyond um, the intention here. Um, and, And at the very least, people should be looking around. How can you help someone in your community carpool? in the midst of this time. You support this, you support these sanctions, we'll support the people that are going to be hurt the most by it domestically that you can actually affect. Uh, we can't 
help the Russian people, who are also, of course, going to be hurt by this. Um, but uh, we need to we need to think, I think, a bit broader about this instead of just looking to you know pat ourselves on the back and cheerlead. Um, none of this comes without extra costs. Um, none of this is is clean. It's all messy. One extra cost, which I think is entirely foreseeable, is that these sanctions are going to add to inflationary pressures, particularly when it comes to gas, but also not just gas, but all sorts of other raw materials which come from both Russia as well as from Ukraine. So we're experiencing in the United States and in Western countries, inflationary pressures growing. These will only be accentuated by what is going on in Ukraine and, and Russia and the West's response to that. Okay, now that's a, you know, that's a known thing. We know this is going to be the case. It's uh, something that uh, can be justified to a certain extent, etc., as a necessary cost of responding to what is clear military aggression against a sovereign state. But we shouldn't be naive about some of the consequences. And inflation is something that affects everyone, but it especially affects the poor the most. They are the ones who are often on fixed incomes. They often don't necessarily have the financial sophistication that's necessary to navigate an inflationary economy. They are the ones who pay more for the types of goods and services that tend to be more affected by inflation. They're less able to buy into sectors of the market that act as inflationary hedges. So again, it's not an argument against making some of these measures real, but we should be very aware of some of the very real, real consequences. And it's, it's a mistake for political leaders, legislators, to go around pretending that there isn't going to be some sort of cost to this. To add on to your point, Sam, one of the things that makes this more problematic is because energy is a sector that we're talking about, energy is an input everywhere along the supply chain line. Every part of it requires energy in some form uh, to get the component parts for whatever it is that is uh, coming in. So you're raising costs all the way along the supply chain in a way that, you know, if uh, if we were talking about different products, something, you know, more consumer, direct consumer goods being the kind of thing that were being cut off in a way that if we were to, and I agree, going back to what we were talking about earlier, we never would with China, but, you know, importing the kind of things that stock your Walmarts and your Myers and your um, uh, convenience stores from China. Okay, that's one thing. But the fact that energy is an input everywhere along the line there, it does put even more pressure on the economic problems that we are already dealing with. Um, that is a, a major thing that we will have to continue to monitor. Uh, the question I want to ask, and I'll, I'll start with you, Sam. I want you to uh, uh, imagine yourself uh, as, as Vladimir Putin for a moment here and – are you surprised by the unanimity of the response from the West to this action? Because if I'm trying to think from his perspective, I, I think it is I think it's undeniable that one of the key things that's said to Putin that the United States in particular was just absolutely feckless and that he could tr probably get away with something like this was what we witnessed last year in Afghanistan. Now regardless of what you think of the necessity or the lack of the necessity of the decision to withdraw American troops from Afghanistan, I think we can all agree and have probably all talked about this at some point uh, last year of just how poorly executed that whole thing was. Um, and probably legitimately assuming on Putin's part that Europe was not going to be nearly as unanimous as it has been in response to it. If you're Putin, Sam, are you surprised by that unanimity of response? Again, caveats uh, all out there, the cutouts that we talked about in the sanctions and all of that. But, but overwhelmingly, this has been, I think, somewhat surprising of how everybody has been on, in the West on the same page with regard to this. Well, I, I am my, my myself. Uh, if I was Putin, I would be somewhat surprised, uh, not least because I think it's pretty clear that Vladimir Putin 
follows a, a, a long trajectory of the way that a certain type of Russian has viewed the West. The West as decadent, the West as feckless, the West as incapable of joining together in, in, in the pursuit of common goals, etc. So he follows in a long trajectory of Russians, whether they are were Soviet communists or czarist rulers, who have held this view of the West. And it's not a view that's without merit, right, because there have been plenty of occasions when the West has not responded as it should have to any in a unified way to any number of particular challenges. Now, the one thing I would say is this. Remember, this is only, is it day 11, day 11 of the invasion? That's a relatively short period of time. And we're watching this war through the lens of social media, of instant communication, etc., in a way that was simply unknown in, say, 1939 or 1914. I've been speculating a little myself about how things like the Second World War or the First World War would be reported today through the same means. So in other words, I think we, in terms of thinking about how the West reacts, reacts to this, there's been an initial display of unity, of very clear, no, there are certain, certain lines that the West has laid down that they are telling Putin, you will not cross these lines, we will act in a unified way. But is that going to be the same in a month's time or three months' time or a year's time? I'm a great believer in the notion that nation states follow their own perceived self-interest, whatever that happens to be. And sometimes the regime or the type of government in power doesn't really matter. So let's see in, let's say, three months' time, six months' time, a year's time, whether this unanimity uh, continues to be there. I mean, I hope it does, but uh, nation states tend to follow whatever there happens to be in their self-interest, and let's see if that may re- that rule plays out over the next few months. Because if it does, I could see some some sig- significant splintering between, for example, the way that Germany is dealing with some of these issues compared to France, compared to Italy, compared to Britain, compared to the Scandinavian countries, compared to the United States. I think the, in a way, the longer that this continues to drag out, the likelihood is greater that it just slips from particularly the American consciousness. I can't speak for any of the countries in uh, in Europe that are much uh, physically closer to what is going on here. But, you know, it, it is long said that American elections are not decided on foreign policy with notable and enormous exceptions right you know so the the one of the buckings of the trend that you normally get in the first term of a president which is that the first midterm election is bad for the party of the person in the white house was 2002 and the obvious reason for that being the repercussions of 911 and the sentiments of the nation at the time well that that seems pretty obvious i can't imagine this continuing one to the extent that if you look at public opinion data right now, foreign policy is not a high priority of a lot of people. Ukraine specifically is not a key priority for a lot of people. And there is a lot of that, um, you know, the obvious sympathy and the kind of things that I think, as Sam hinted at, are engendered by the communication means that exist today. And I think the ability to see what is going down in Ukraine on TikTok and on Instagram, it is going to be interesting to watch the effect that that has on people. Because I don't think you know we we could point to we could point to Syria um, as a potential another example for. And I think there are marked differences between what we're seeing in Ukraine and what transpired in Syria. Um, but as the first conflicts that have been broadcast in real time, to Sam's point, you know, you wonder what the reaction of people would have been if you were getting, you know, live tweet threads and Instagram videos of the landing at D-Day. Uh, you know, even just the way that media reported on the war in Vietnam had an incredible impact on the nation's appetite for what was going on in Vietnam. So I don't think we fully understand the impact that these communications technologies are going to have. So on one hand, 
I just think it's just almost undeniably true that it will fade from the American consciousness the longer that it drags out. But on the other hand, if it continues to be uh, the kind of thing that shows up in your Instagram feed, I just don't know what the impact of that is going to be long term. Yeah, so I have um, maybe a, I have a cynical response to that and uh, maybe a more hopeful one. So I'll start with the first uh, uh, and that is that I think for a lot of people, what is happening, a lot of Americans, what's happening in the Ukraine uh, and the way in which they're consuming news through social media is more or less indistinguishable from the way in which someone watches uh, the real world or keeping up with the Kardashians or any other sort of reality TV. It is, unfortunately, their entertainment. Um, people are cheering on the side that they root for. They are very credulously believing anything that supports that. I think we mentioned last week the video game footage being tweeted out by the official Ukraine Twitter account. Everybody was, oh, hey, isn't this great? This wonderful fighter pilot over Kiev. He doesn't exist. It's a video game. <laughs> like, this is insane. The, you know, um, people are right to be skeptical of, of Russian propaganda. Um, but Ukraine is also former USSR, and they do the same thing. And people don't seem to remember that. Um, so that's... I agree with you on that note. On the other hand, uh, you mentioned Afghanistan earlier, um, and I've been saddened that we seem to have moved on in terms of news cycle and all of that. Uh, the people we abandoned, they are starving now. Um, they are selling their kidneys, according to a Reuters story last week, to try to feed their families. Um, it's awful, um, and we're doing nothing about it. However, if you look at President Biden's approval rating, it has not been positive since mid to late August. In fact, it is comparable to former President Trump's very dismal popularity uh, numbers. Um, and, you know, that was conspicuously missing from uh, his State of the Union. Uh, understandably so. You wouldn't want to bring up the worst thing about your presidency on your State of the Union, your first State of the Union address. Um, but it also shows that maybe Americans haven't forgotten. Um, maybe this matters to more people. Maybe it's not the sort of person who's on Twitter, uh, which is a very slim number of the population in the first place. Um, and so maybe we're getting a skewed view of things. So I think there is a note of hope there when I look at that. Um, not to say that I hope Americans wouldn't like their president, but it, it seems to me very clear that this is coming from the way in which the Afghanistan withdrawal happened. And I was upset at the time uh, that in two weeks, the news moved on. I think the I think the way that it is continuing there is while Afghanistan specifically has certainly faded in the rearview mirror, it is just not a thing that people are focused on. The reason that the, the sentiment engendered by that I think is continuing in American public opinion is because when it comes to presidents, if you demonstrate at some point that you're incompetent, it's very hard to get the sense of competency back. I mean, the calamity that was the second term of George W. Bush, um, people look at uh, Iraq as being one of the, the key things that broke the popularity of the um, and the public good public opinion numbers of the Bush administration. It was just as much Hurricane Katrina because the government response to that seemed completely incompetent. Now, there's... There's an argument to be made there that the media representations of how competent or incompetent that response was was not as bad as they presented it. But nonetheless, the takeaway that the American people had from it was that they didn't know what they were doing. And the takeaway from Afghanistan was that the Biden administration did not know what it was doing. And then – and we will jumping ahead here to the State of the Union. We'll come back to that. But I just want to make the note that the other problem with that speech is, of course, you don't bring up as you – you know. You could make an argument, I think, for why you try to recontextualize what happened in Afghanistan. Leaving it just completely unsaid is kind of a big glaring error that the kind of people who follow what happens in the State of the Union address uh, are going to notice. But – and this will get to the point that I have about the State of the Union later – is the rest of it was just like as if nothing that happened in the last year had actually happened. It It, it is – all of this, what I think is one of the more invidious forms of political lies, which is not the kind of cheap politicians not telling you the truth. It is politicians promising that things can happen that absolutely cannot happen. And I think 
people are in some ways wise to this now, that anybody listening to the laundry list of things, the component parts of Build Back Better, thinking that any of it is going to get passed, it's just not going to get passed. Um, so I, I think that you're not going to get that sense of competency back. It is very hard, if not impossible, to regain uh, if when it is lost. In fact, in the only way, and I'm not at all suggesting that I think that this is on the horizon, is a major military conflict with the United States involved directly. I do not think that is going to happen here. But it is one of the few ways, and this is why you get the conspiracy theory stuff surrounding military action that was like, oh, this is just to booster the popular boost the popularity of the president. I, I think that's almost never the reason why these things are engaged in, but you understand why people think that. I want to move on, uh, continuing to talk about Ukraine, but I want to talk about uh, the response of the church to what is going on in Ukraine. Ukraine, primarily an Orthodox uh, Christian country. Dylan, what has been the response of the Orthodox Church to what is transpiring? So there's a great article. Maybe we can put a link in the show notes in Commonweal by George Demacopoulos of the uh, uh, Fordham Orthodox Christian Studies Center, where he gives a good survey. This was a week ago, so it'll be a week old, um, but a good survey of the initial responses of um, various patriarchs and other hierarchs of the church. And it, there's kind of a good, bad, and ugly to it. Um, there's, there's a lot of people, um, I, I would say, to be fair— Basically, everyone is calling for peace, so that's good. Um, but you have uh, someone like Patriarch Kirill, uh, who has not called it—you know—he calls it an event in the Ukraine, right? Like he's literally avoiding terms that the Kremlin, as part of their propaganda, wants all media to avoid in describing this this invasion, um, and. He has his own agenda there as well. It's it's a very difficult um, situation in terms of uh, jurisdictional disputes. There's an independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church, um, and there's a Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate. The majority of Orthodox churches in Ukraine are under that patriarchate or under that um, that church. Um, but there's there's this is something that's been a, a sore subject um, for a long time. Um, is exacerbated by, in 2019, the ecumenical patriarch, Patriarch of Constantinople, granting the independent church autocephalacy, so acknowledging it, its independence, um, to put it very cursorily. Um, and, uh, but of the po- more positive side, uh, Metropolitan Onufri of Kiev, of this Ukrainian church, Moscow Patriarchate, in no uncertain terms, has said this war uh, is not justified by either God or men. This is right at the start. Uh, he has been outspoken. There have been um, dioceses of the Ukrainian church, Moscow Patriarchate, which uh, have decided not to commemorate Patriarch Kirill in the liturgy anymore. Um, they haven't broken canonical uh, affiliation, but still. Um, and there are, in fact, uh, there was a recent um, statement from something around three, 300 clergy in Russia of the Russian Orthodox Church, although mostly priests and deacons, as far as I know, I didn't, I didn't hear of any bishops being involved, um, but protesting um, the again the invasion of Ukraine. Um, so there's there's some complexity there, um, but there's also just some layers that I think are are really really complex if you dig into the the history of things in the current state of Russia as well. Sam. Uh... Question to you, and feel free to comment on any of what Dylan had to say about the the Orthodox Church response, but uh, I'm curious for your thoughts on what you have uh, seen in the response from the Vatican. Well, the Catholic situation in Ukraine is uh, probably almost as complicated as the Orthodox situation in Ukraine. And the Holy See has to think about some of those realities when— it's dealing with this subject. So on one level, initially the Holy See came out and was basically praying for peace. Uh, The Pope visited, uh, I believe it was the, I think it was either the Ukrainian or the Russian ambassador to the Holy See, and he made calls to people in Ukraine and Russia, and all, all that is fine. But there was immediate criticism that there was no mention of the fact that this quote-unquote military operation was the act of a sovereign country invading another sovereign country. In other words, an act of aggressive 
war. And that is should be considered, I think, rather problematic. And the fact that the Holy See took so long until yesterday in Pope Francis's address, his Sunday address, he made a comment that this is not a military operation, this is a war. Now, that from the Holy See is somewhat of a shift insofar as they're basically identifying one of those sovereign countries as having committed something is, – is, uh, one of these sovereign countries is at fault. One of the regimes involved here is at fault. It has taken an action which is unjustified. So that's one thing. So it's been a, a shift over the past 10 days. I mean, the Holy See often presents itself as being a type of mediator that can somehow get interested parties who are at war and who are about to go to war and with each other, get them together in a room and have them talking to each other. Uh, I, I think happen to think that the Holy See's capacity and its credibility to do such things has rapidly declined over the past 30 years. I would argue that it actually started happening uh, in the second half of John Paul II's pontificate. And there's all sorts of reasons for that, which we don't need to talk about today. So the Vatican's response has shifted over the past week. I'm sure there are some people in the Secretariat of State who would like to see themselves as playing a mediating role. But I don't think Vladimir Putin really thinks very much or cares very much what the Holy See says about anything. So that's one thing. The second thing is that <clears throat> the internal dynamics within Ukraine itself, and Dylan uh, pointed out, I thought, very well some of the internal things that are going on within, within the Orthodox world, which play into other disputes that have gone on in the, in the Orthodox world, which precede this particular invasion. But of course, in, in Ukraine, Ukraine, about 9% of the Ukrainian population are what are called U Ukrainian Greek Catholics. So these are, these are Christians who are in communion with the Bishop of Rome, uh, who practice what we would recognize as being Eastern Orthodox rites, etc. They often, though not exclusively, use Slavonic language. They also use uh, vernacular languages as well. But they're about 10% of the population of Ukraine. Ukraine, by the way, has a very high religious participation rate. It's just behind Poland, I believe, when it comes to religious participation. So, the other thing to keep in mind is that something like 25% of those who practice their religion in Ukraine are Ukrainian Catholic. So that gives the Ukrainian Catholic Church a disproportionate weight within Ukraine itself when it comes to religious practice and belief. The Ukrainian Greek, uh, Greek Catholics are predominantly located in the western part of Ukraine. In fact, in Places like Yvov, they are over 60% of the population. So the, the difference between West and East Ukraine is defined to a certain extent, not definitively, and it's not as clear as it may have been, say, 50, 60 years ago. There is the sense that West Ukraine tends to lean in this uniate Catholic direction and Eastern Ukraine is more in this Eastern Orthodox direction. So those are some of the religious uh, patterns that characterize Ukraine, which are clearly playing into some of the way in which you see people talking about this particular dispute. I mean, one thing that I think the Holy See should have done a long time ago is make the uh, patriarch, or the Catholic patriarch of you, you, uh, the Archbishop, I should say, of, of uh, Kiev, he should have been made a patriarch a long time ago, and he should have been made a cardinal a very, very long time ago. So Archbishop Sivyastov Shevgek, I'm sure I've completely mispronounced that, uh, he's 51 years old, which is incredibly young for such a person. Um, he's been uh, very outspoken in talking about what's been going on. Uh, he has very good relations with the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and, and their leaders, and he's made it very clear that what's going on in terms of Russia, there's been none of the type of language we've seen deployed by the Russian Orthodox Church, or at least its leadership there. Um, so this is going to be the religious pattern that characterizes Ukraine and, and the way that that plays into this particular dispute 
is something that I think a good number of Western commentators have not talked about because in many cases they tend to be uh, religiously ignorant, shall we say, to put it mildly. They don't understand or appreciate the ways in which some of these things play into these geopolitical conflicts. So the Holy See has a very delicate delicate uh, balancing act to make. I'm very glad that it identified uh, that this is a war it's not, and, and, and did not use this and, and basically distanced itself from this language of military operation which has been used by the Putin regime. But I still think there is a lot more that the Holy See could have done and should be doing when it comes to this. They are sending people now to the Ukraine. There are lots of Catholic agencies that are at work there. Uh, both through religious orders and through different national bishops' conferences who are very effective in granting aid and trying to help people to escape and helping migrants, etc. <clears throat> but I think this is an area where, if you're looking at the geopolitical stakes, the Holy See, I think, made some significant miscalculations uh, when it came to this particular conflict and now is playing catch-up, as it unfortunately often does when it comes to these things. Dylan, I want you to weigh in similarly to what Sam did there for the, the Catholic Church on, on what you think the Orthodox Church should be doing, less the description of what they have done and more in your opinion what you think they should be doing. But let me ask a question first out of my entire lack of knowledge of this and, and you answered it the best of your ability. Uh, how intertwined or not intertwined is the Russian Orthodox Church with the Putin government? Uncomfortably intertwined, I think, is is a good answer to that. Um, uh, to give some context, not a defense, but just to understand. Um, communism was brutal for everyone, um, but it was especially brutal for the Russian Orthodox Church because of its prominent role in the Russian Empire. Um, it was a distinct institution, um, had a lot of cultural cachet, and there was an active anti-religious uh persecution by the communists, um, by the Bolsheviks, and then also, um, so for example, from 1927 to 1940, the number of Orthodox churches in Russia fell from 29,584 to less than 500. Um, there is an estimated, uh, it's very broad range, so who knows, but an estimated 12 to 20 million martyrs during this time. Um, this is very recent memory for Russian Orthodox Christians and uh, bishops. Uh, so when you have anybody uh, who comes along, including Vladimir Putin, saying, hey, I am a supporter of the church and its values, um, they see an opportunity there. Maybe they are naive or maybe they're opportunistic, but they more or less have supported that line. So, for example, uh, Putin's role in Syria in propping up... Uh, Bashar al-Assad. Yeah, Assad. Um, well, the defense is uh, he does grant some protections to Christians in the area, many of whom are Orthodox, um, in a way that some rebel groups, including some that we have funded and supplied, uh, have no regard for the Christians of that area. And so he says, well, I'm a protector of Christians in the Middle East, right? Um, and the church supports that. Um, there's a similar sort of line, I think far less convincingly so, but that seems to be um, ruling the day right now, uh, that uh, there there is a genuine separatist movement in the Donbass. Um, it's more like a 50-50 sort of thing, people who want to stay and people who want either to be closer aligned with Russia or a minority who want to be part of Russia. Interestingly, um, I did see one statistic that of that, about 20% who want to be part of Russia, uh, none of them cite things like, oh, I am ethnically Russian, I speak Russian, um, it's part of my cultural identity. Uh, they they cite economic reasons. Reasons they want a job. <laughs> they want they want a better life. Um, it's it's not quite even what anybody seems to be saying. Um, but so they look at that and they say, well, these people are fighting for their lives, their independence. Now there's a lot of Russian meddling happening there. Nothing. None of this is clear cut. Um, but it's very messy on both sides. In 2015, the Ukrainian parliament um, suspended human rights conventions, <laughs> basically just saying we're not going to bother uh, trying to respect these things. There's reports of torture on both sides, people being kidnapped, disappearing, that sort of thing. So they look at this and they say, hey, we're supporting our people there. Many of these people are orthodox. I don't see how, even if you buy that, 
that would justify invading the entire country, um, attacking the capital, anything along those lines. But that's the current line. What I would like to see uh, is uh, for Kirill to start saying what Metropolitan Onufri has been saying, to condemn this as an act of war and aggression, as immoral and unjustified. Um, but it would take a great amount of bravery to do that. Um, and um, to not to get too far into the weeds, but uh, – Russia is a very unfree country and it's gotten less free throughout my lifetime, which is a pretty bad statement to make. Um, I, I guess not entirely through my lifetime. I did live through the fall of the Berlin Wall and all that. But really, you know, I was like seven in 1991. Um, and today there's basically no free press. If you criticize Putin, you disappear, right? Um, there's not a lot of political freedom. There are other parties. Most of them are worse than Vladimir Putin's party, the Communist Party being notably the second largest. Um, and But if you criticize Putin, you get stabbed, you get poisoned, you disappear. Um, so this would be a great cost for anybody to speak out. The church, though, has the cachet and the media network to actually do that in a way that nothing else in Russia does anymore. Um, I'm not very hopeful that it will use it for that end. Um, I'm not, I don't want to try to give any kind of idealistic conception here. Um, but there is at least some historical precedent. Again, there's a record of Russian martyrs speaking out against communism. Now, that was a little clearer since they were militant atheists, pretty clear, you know, speak out or um, they're going to they're gonna persecute you anyway. Um, but let's go back farther. Um, if you look in the, the 18th century, you have a lot of ideas of the Enlightenment, human rights, freedoms, constitutionalism, abolition of serfdoms and slavery. Uh, that was coming to Russia through the church in a lot of cases. Uh, people were seeing this. Orthodox people were reading the, these ideas, seeing these ideas and recognizing their own tradition in them. Um, so you have in, 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 in Russian society today, um, again, really hard to get reliable data, but it's my understanding that the Russian Orthodox Church is still one of the most trusted institutions of society. And I don't think Putin would be trying to posture himself as a defender of Christians in the Middle East and throughout the world if he didn't need to. Um, that there is something about the role of the church as a legitimizing force for Putin. And unfortunately, it is currently acting in that role. Um, but that tells you that it, they, they would actually have some real leverage should they choose to use it. Sam, as Dylan said there, uh, described you know, Putin as posturing, as defending the church. Why are so many people on the American right buying into that understanding of Putin as this defender of Christian values within his country uh, and using that as a reason to... Um, both sides this conflict, or in the case of somebody more like Tucker Carlson at the very beginning of it, openly cheering for Russia? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. One is that uh, the degree of hostility from political leaders, legislators, etc., towards religion uh, particularly Christianity, particularly what you might call smaller orthodox Christianity throughout the West, the degree of hostility and indifference is pretty remarkable. Uh, in America, it's a little different because at least one side of politics uh, <laughs> plays a type of lip service or is talks about Christian values and all these sorts of things. And as I said, I think a lot of that's lip service. Uh, but of course, in 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 most of <clears throat> Europe, it's rel it's a relatively hostile environment. So, towards people who hold to, let's say, as I said, orth small or orthodox Christian beliefs on questions of faith and morals. And I think some of these people look to Putin and say, well, you know, look, he does publicly associate himself with Christianity. He doesn't seem embarrassed by Christianity. He recognizes Christianity as part of our past and our present and our future, etc. So, I mean, I happen to think that it's a very, it's a very strange thing for Americans to be supporting someone who is as authoritarian as it gets, who engages in uh, assassinations abroad and domestically, who has shut down any 
real sense of constitutional freedom, etc., who is engaging in militant war against a sovereign nation, etc. I suspect what I just said is part of the background as to why they talk this way, the way they make this equivalency, the way they talk about Putin. It maybe also has something to do with what I think Dylan uh, pointed out, that when it came to Russian intervention in Syria, that Putin did present himself as the protector of the Christians, something, by the way, that the Tsars did uh, also when it came to Christians in the Middle East. The Tsars always presented themselves as the protectors of Christians in the Middle East because uh, probably most Christians in the Middle East were capital O Orthodox Christians belonging to different Orthodox churches. Uh, I mean, it's, so this this conflation of that we see going on in some parts of the American right with this pro-Putin sentiment, I suspect that's some of the background that I've just outlined. I don't think it makes any particular sense because of all the bad things that Putin does and the way he acts in clearly ways that violate basic principles of Christian morality. So I'm not surprised, but I'm disappointed at the inability or the unwillingness of people to make the necessary distinctions so that they can talk about this in a morally reasonable way. Uh, so one thing I can add to this as well, I think this might explain um, more the, the Rod Dreyer sort of angle to some degree, although he, well, I don't know, I don't want to get into specifics of where he stands on this, but why he has liked Russia in the past. Um, this is a quote uh, that could have come um, from Yoram Hazoni at the National Conservative Conference. In fact, he said basically the same thing, more or less in so many words. But this actually comes from Patriarch Kirill in his 2011 book. He says, in the private sphere, freedom of moral choice should be as complete as possible. Here, a person can make a moral choice at his or her own discretion, even act in a way that is contrary to public morality. The only things that can be limited in the private sphere are moral choices that can cause injury to another member of society. However, in the public sphere of any state, only those values shared by a majority of the people should be allowed to be disseminated and receive public support. Uh, in 2011, I didn't really know exactly what that looked like, so I probably gave it too good of a review <laughs> when I reviewed the book. Um, what that has meant, uh, one aspect of what that has meant is the church has promoted, promoted what they call anti-propaganda legislation, uh, which is basically making things like gay pride parades illegal in Russia. Um, they say, go ahead, do what you want in your own home, uh, but we don't want any of that out in public. Um, there are a significant number of American conservatives that say, yeah, that's exactly what we want. We want you know, the, all the social conservatism. We want this enshrined into law. Um, I think it's incredibly counterproductive what happens when somebody other than Putin who doesn't care about the church is in charge of Russia and they decide... They want uh, anti-church propaganda law, and they—I mean, this this literally happened uh, under Stalin. Um, you know, uh, it's a really bad precedent, really short-sighted, I think. Um, but I think there are people that that is very attractive to on the American right. Well, I I think you see that in uh, issues with admittedly lower stakes here in the United States, where that same kind of a lack of an ability to think further out than the tip of your nose about how these things will be utilized. One of my uh, enduring hesitations about so much of the anti-CRT uh, laws that have been crafted is because if you read them, if you actually read the text of this legislation, it is abundantly clear to me, and I do not know how it is not abundantly clear to the people who are flogging everyone on the need for these laws – of how the people that they are most afraid of being in political power would use them if they were passed. It is so abundantly obvious to me, and I just do not understand how they don't see that, you know, the um, pro a prohibition on teaching divisive concepts will be read by people that disagree with them politically in order to ban the kinds of things that they think they're going to bring out in curriculum by passing these kinds of laws. Uh, and all of this, again, ignoring where we should actually be dealing with these issues, which is the state does have a role in curriculum and can make those decisions through the mechanisms that are currently set up. But it's like it's a version in, again, a much lower stakes way 
of what should have troubled us about Canada and the Emergencies Act, the idea of a piece of legislation to be invoked in emergencies that gives an enormous amount of power like that. You know, uh, there was something similar available to, um, you know, the the ruler of Rome at one point in time. He became Caesar and didn't give the power back. Why we should expect that this kind of power would be given back or that it would be utilized, um, (laughs) again, from people who say that they think the uh, American left is so incredibly nefarious, and you see this from some of those voices on on the right that Sam uh, had referenced, that they just, they can't bring themselves to hate Vladimir Putin as much as they hate the American left, but they want to give them this incredible tool. I, I, I do not understand it. Before we're done, I do want to, as we did last week, briefly touch on the State of the Union address. Uh, President Biden did uh, begin it talking about what is going on in Ukraine. Um, I will just throw it open. We'll do it as a uh, just a question here at the end of the program. Dylan, uh, what was your impression of the State of the Union? Oh, boy. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, there was some excitement, I suppose, but I thought it was pretty boring actually um and and kind of surprisingly boring now he spent about the first 10 minutes talking about what we've been talking about uh, uh russia's uh, attack on ukraine um uh but then he transitioned to domestic issues and as you mentioned he talked as if uh it had been a very different year <laughs> um and then he didn't mention afghanistan which again is kind of understandable but basically he's letting anybody else set the narrative uh of what seems to be the biggest blunder of his presidency so far and has very clearly substantially affected his poll numbers. Um, so that was just politically surprising. Like even if you want to just put yourself in uh, Joe Biden's position, say what is in his self-interest? I don't really quite see how that speech was it. Um, some small positive things, or at least one, I did like, um, as you predicted last week, uh, the stance towards COVID restriction seems to be we're going to we're going to take a step back. He didn't you know, he didn't want to say we're going to live with COVID, but he basically said that we're going to. In fact, he explicitly said we're not going to. And then he basically went on to say that we're going to. Um, And in that, I do like that he pointed out and I wish this is would get more press um, that we actually have treatment for COVID now. Uh, We have anti antiviral medication that um, and we've had it now for for months. um, But we have things that can be used, and let's hope that becomes more widely available as well. So if, if getting COVID means, okay, it's serious, uh, you need to get treatment right away, but then you'll be fine, that's a very different situation than we don't know what to do about this. And if you're too old or you are diabetic or you have other preexisting conditions, this this could take your life. That's a very different situation. So uh, there is a reality there that I'm glad was acknowledged, but it was a footnote that I think most people probably didn't notice. It was a you know a series of many things in a list of well we got a vaccine and we got masks and we got other sorts of preventative measures. So the uh, old fable of the bell and the cat. Uh, I think the president of the United States, whoever it is, is very much caught up in the dilemma that exists in that fable. And the dilemma there is that it is in the interest of every mouse to put a bell on the cat. But it is not in the interest of any individual mouse to be the one to put the bell on the cat. So you have a collective action problem there. Uh, It would be in the interest of all presidents to end the State of the Union as the kind of speech that it is now, but it is not obviously in the interest of any individual president at the time to take away the one night where everybody in at least the politically focused world is paying attention to what the president of the United States is saying. The problem is, as I referenced earlier, is what can be accomplished by this speech is now so incredibly limited in that it has, uh, and I think the, the person you can really blame for this, um, there, there are two themes that exist in every state of the union. One part of it was established by Ronald Reagan and the other part was established by Bill Clinton. Reagan established the calling out the individual heroes in the room as um, essentially as as political props to advance an agenda that, you know, both of these things I'm I'm not really necessarily inveighing against. They are part of politics. Um, and there are certainly the times when those, you know, calling out the hero in the room has its impact. Um, but it 
the kind of thing that was effective when introduced and used by Ronald Reagan has now been so overdone and overused that it loses its effectiveness. The other is really, and this is largely existed as part of the State of the Union, but Bill Clinton like distilled and concentrated it, the laundry list of things that you want to do. And I think, as I referenced earlier, that this is one of the most nefarious parts of all of it, that we have a problem in this country with trust in political institutions. And what um, the pe- what people are hearing there is similar to uh, what Republicans said for a long time about Obamacare, that if you just put us in power, we'll repeal Obamacare. You had Kamala Harris when she was running for president saying, you know, on day one, I'm going to issue these executive orders on on gun control and saying that she was going to do things that she literally could not do. And this is a huge problem in our politics now that politicians promise things that can't actually be done. And unsurprisingly, people are very disappointed when the things that were never going to happen turn out to not happen. And that is a different form of dishonesty and lying in the public square and one that I think is more nefarious than the kind of average politician tells things that aren't true kind of lying that we expect from politicians. This is telling people that something that is impossible is actually possible and all they need to do is cast a vote for an individual to make it happen when things are so much more difficult to get accomplished. And everyone, every political leader's inability to be honest about that continues to erode people's faith in institutions. And I think we are continuing to see the consequences of that eroding faith in institutions. Sam, your takeaways from the State of the Union? Well, I thought it was interesting that an estimated 38.2 million people watched the State of the Union. So that's roughly, what, 9% of the population? Uh that's fell short of the 45.6 million who watched uh, Donald Trump's first State of the Union speech back in 2018. So uh, maybe that tells us something. I'll throw in for context too. 112 million people watched the Super Bowl. <laughs> right. So I think what this tells us is that um, <clears throat> people are tuning out of this particular uh, piece of theater of American politics. It's not as if Joe Biden is a great orator. It's not as if that Donald Trump is a great orator either. But these things have become, this, this particular event has become a piece of theater in which all the predictable things happen, in which people sit around and count how many times people stand up to clap, how long clapping goes on for, uh, the, the speech gets analysed in terms of how a particular administration is trying to present itself, how it's trying to play up its strengths, downplay its weaknesses. You always look to see, as you mentioned, what's not talked about. Afghanistan was not one of those things that was talked about. Um, so <clears throat> I, I, I'm like you, Eric. I wish this would just go back to the president sending a letter to Congress outlining what he or she believes the State of the Union is. It's very unlikely that any president would do that. It's probably in the interest of the institution. It's not in the interest of the particular individual who happens to hold the office at one point in time. Although I I don't think there's ever been a case in which a State of the Union address has suddenly dramatically reversed uh, a president's uh, political ratings or poll ratings or anything like that. So I'm not sure how much they would actually lose. It may even be the case that some people would say, finally, finally some president has finally done what lots of us have wanted us wanted the president to do with this particular event, which is to make it what it used to be. Uh, I think before, I believe it was Woodrow Wilson who was the first who started doing this type of event in this particular type of way. So I like like Dylan, I didn't find it particularly interesting, except in terms of what it didn't say. There were things that were said. So Dylan mentioned the the medical advances that have been made, etc. And of course, a lot of that happened in the private sector. A lot of that happened when Donald Trump was uh, president, not all of it, but a lot of it. But all these very important things get 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 smoothed over and pushed into the background when it comes to these particular events, because I think we should just treat them for what they are, which is just political theatre that for the most part doesn't serve any real aspect of the common good. 
It reminds me of uh, Napoleon Dynamite. It's sort of the the vote for Pedro uh, stance of Pedro as Napoleon Dynamite's friend, for those who don't know this wonderful film. Uh, he was running for, uh, I don't know, class president or homecoming king or something like that. And he gets up there to make a speech, uh, and at the advice of his friend, whose name is Napoleon Dynamite, uh, he says, vote for me and your wildest dreams will come true. And then he leaves the stage and his friend, Napoleon Dynamite, puts on a five-minute dance routine that's awesome. But it's very much, vote for me, your wildest dreams will come true, now enjoy this dance. <laughs> and it's all, there's no substance there. There's no reality there. Unarguably, uh, Joe Biden's uh, State of the Union would have been better if it were communicated entirely through interpretive dance. Oh, any, any State of the Union would be better in dance form. Let's call it a wrap there. I want to thank you for listening to Act and Unwind this week. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind, or you can just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. Thanks to Sam. Thanks to Dylan for the Acton Institute. This is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.